The rest of us are in Second Peter. We're going to start in the middle of a verse, chapter 2, the uh, end of verse 10. Second Peter chapter 2, starting in the middle of verse 10, bold and willful, it says, and it will be up on the slides right now. Um, Second Peter chapter 2. There it is. Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These, the false teachers, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after, having, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks indeed. There are many uh, martial arts that exist in the world. Judo, karate, Muay Thai, Taekwondo, some of you take. And there are wonderful teachers of these martial arts around the world. And their, their goal is not to highlight themselves. Their goal is to equip their students to show them the beauty and, and usefulness of this martial art. But then th- there are not so wonderful teachers, Right? They teach Taekwondo don't. I came up with that by myself. <laughs> they, don't, they don't teach real martial arts. They teach some, some fake self-defense that doesn't work in real life. And so when they or their students face real danger, or when someone who knows a real martial art comes to them, they find themselves defenseless. That's why Peter goes out of his way to tell you what these false teachers are like. 
He spends a third of his letter describing these false teachers. It's not simply to criticize them. It's not simply to show you how much better Peter is than these guys. It's to warn you. It's to warn you about the dangers of following false teachers and false teaching. You might be found defenseless. Now, who are we talking about? A a quick note here. When Scripture speaks of false teachers or false teaching, it's not referring to someone who has a different view of baptism or predestination than us. We're, We're talking about the fundamentals of our faith, those who teach a different gospel, which Paul reminds us doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a different gospel. There is the one true gospel and everything else. So how do I know if someone is a false teacher? How do I know if I've succumbed to false teaching? Well, you will observe the fruit of falsehood. And you can observe the fruit of falsehood by asking yourself these questions, which you'll see on the screens. What do they desire? Where are they destined? And whom do they deliver? We'll repeat those questions just in case you missed them. What do they desire? Now, right away, right away, This is why we're starting in verse 10. Peter talks about what they desire. He tells you what these false teachers are like by what they desire. He says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, they don't pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So two things we need to talk about. Bold and willful. Right? That's another way of saying recklessly bold and stubbornly willful. They're strong-willed. So they're reckless and they're stubborn. They don't care about what they say and they're going to keep saying it no matter what anyone tells them. And what are they doing? Well, they're blaspheming. We have to talk about this word because when we hear the word blasphemy, we think somebody calling themselves Jesus. Or somebody saying Jesus isn't God. We're, t- we're thinking the fundamentals of our faith. But Peter here is, isn't quite talking about that. He's, he's using the more casual use of the word, which means speaking irreverently, kind of insulting the things of God. The false teachers were insulting the glorious ones, the angels. We don't know if if it's the fallen angels. We don't know if it's the angels in heaven. We don't know exactly what they were saying. That's not the point. Don't get lost in those details. The point is they were speaking boldly and arrogantly about things they had no business talking about. They didn't know what they were talking about. That's a characteristic of a false teacher. Verse 12, Peter points out that they were blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. You don't know what you're talking about. Now that, maybe a lot of people in your mind fall into that category. But when we couple that with verse 14, a clearer picture starts to form. In verse 14, we see that they have eyes full of adultery. They are insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed. So now we have not just one thing. Not just that they're bold and willful and maybe a little bit immature and maybe they don't know what they're talking about. No, this is a different picture. There's three things that stand out here. Peter is saying that they make much of themselves. They make much of themselves by judging and even putting down the angels. They they want to fulfill the desires of their body. 
They want to fulfill their carnal desires. And they, and they seek to satisfy their greed by accumulating as much as they can. Now, part of the reason, part of the reason we are sometimes enticed by false teaching is we have some of those same deceptive desires. I call them deceptive desires because the desires themselves are not bad. Deep down, deep down, when we get to the root of our desires, they are good things. We desire happiness, security, belonging, peace. Those are good things. The problem comes when we make those good things into ultimate things. We turn those good desires into ultimate desires and we start looking to satisfy those desires above all else at all costs. You're going to see this in just about every show, movie, or book. But the one that came to mind for me was Anakin Skywalker. You might know Anakin Skywalker better as Darth Vader. And before you tune out, because you don't know anything about Star Wars, you don't need to, to appreciate what's going on. All you need to know is that Anakin, before he became the Dark Overlord, all he wanted was to protect the people he loved. That's all he wanted. Does that sound like a good desire to you? It does to me. That sounds like exactly what I want. I want to protect my loved ones. But he took that good desire and turned it into an ultimate desire, the desire. And with the aid of of an evil being kind of manipulating him, that desire got so twisted that he finally gave in to the dark side. And he did terrible, terrible things. Now, I don't think many of you are in danger of becoming an evil overlord. Um, I have my eye on a few of you, but we do face the same things. We do face the same temptation of giving in to our desires and making good desires into ultimate desires. But Proverbs wisely warns us against this. In Proverbs, the counsel is given when you sit down to eat with a ruler. Now, when you think of ruler, think of somebody intimidating. You have to imagine that you are, you are a poor peasant and here is the person that has full authority over your life, over your finances, over everything. And so you're sitting down with the ruler, maybe a politician, maybe your boss, maybe a king, whoever it is. Observe carefully what is before you. The proverb goes so far as to say, put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Don't take any food. Verse 3 makes this clear. Do not desire his delicacies. Why? Is it because the food's bad? No. It's because that steak is not a steak. That steak is a favor. That steak is a quid pro quo. That steak is a mistake you're going to regret for the rest of your life. I didn't intend, that's not written. I just... And so he goes on to say, these are deceptive foods. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be, discer- be discerning enough to desist. Just like a wicked king might use his riches and his food and his power to get you to use to do things, false teachers are not just harmlessly, innocently teaching another gospel. They write books, they make commercials, they start podcasts, they produce videos for a purpose, and it's not your good, it's theirs. 
But in contrast to these false teachers of our day and Peter's day, and even in contrast to what you desire for yourself, Jesus desires so much better for you. That is the gospel. The gospel is not stop desiring things. The gospel is Jesus desires better. What does he desire? I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus systematically addresses these same things that Peter does in Matthew chapter 6. I don't think it's a coincidence. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, Jesus starts his speech by saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's exactly what the false teachers were doing. They were boasting boldly and willfully. The false teachers also had eyes of adultery. And what does Jesus say later in that chapter? Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. And so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, if you have eyes full of adultery, your whole body is going to be full of darkness. Don't imagine that you can look at something and look at something and look at something and look at something and it won't affect the rest of you. That's not how it works. Finally, he says, the false teachers weren't just greedy, they were trained in greed. And Jesus reminds us of this familiar passage, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, why am I pointing this out? Am I just showing you that Jesus and Peter are agreeing? No. The question is, why do we have these warnings? Is it because our desires are bad and Jesus wants us to stop it? Is that the gospel? That's bad, stop it. Is that the gospel we're teaching our children? Hey, that's bad, stop it. Our neighbors, hey, that's bad, stop it. Is it because we want too much? Is Jesus saying, hey, that, that's too grand, that's too much, you're asking too high of a thing, settle down, be content with what you have. No, it's quite the opposite. Jesus himself shows us that we want too little. And the gospel is way more than just stop it. He says in Matthew 6, the end of that verse, why should you not boast in your good works? Why should you not practice your righteousness in order to be seen? Because then you will have no real reward. You will have your reward by being seen by others, but you're not going to have the reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus doesn't say you want too much. He says you want too little. Jesus doesn't say stop it. He says do something else. There's a greater reward waiting for you. He goes on, why should we not have our hearts trained in greed? Is it because we shouldn't desire those things? No, we should seek something greater. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because that's where moth and rust destroy and that's where thieves come in. They break in and they steal. You know what you should do instead? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus doesn't say don't seek after treasure. He says seek after the greater treasure, the better treasure, the true treasure. Go where neither moth nor rust destroys. Invest where thieves cannot break in and steal. Jesus doesn't want to diminish our desires. He wants to reorient our desires. Because what he desires for us is so much greater. And every time you sin, every time I sin, we believe the lie that what we desire for ourselves is greater than what God desires for us. 
Every time you sin, no matter how big or how small, you are believing the lie that what you desire for yourself is greater than what God desires for you. God has encoded in you good desires for peace, for longing, for security. Those desires are good, but those desires can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ himself. Amen? And so we have to ask ourselves, we have to ask of anyone we listen to and allow to have influence in our lives, what do they desire? And then we ask our second question. Not only what do they desire, but where are they destined? Um, P- Peter's, um, Peter's not so nice with his words. Uh, I, I don't know if you've noticed. Chapter 2, verse 12. He describes these false teachers and he says they are born to be caught and destroyed. He goes on to say they will also be destroyed in their destruction. It's like wrongdoing is their job and the wage they get paid is suffering wrong. They suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Now, of course, Peter isn't talking about false teachers who repent. Any of these false teachers who do repent will find the same grace that you and I enjoy in Jesus. Peter isn't saying that anyone who's ever engaged in false teaching is automatically doomed. That's not what he's saying. He is making a point about the path they are on. They are on a path of destruction. If they continue on that path, the destination will be destruction. And if you follow that path, you will find the same destination. And so as we look to our lives and to the lives of those we love, we have to remember that there are only two paths. There is God's way and there's every other way. There is, as Jesus calls it, the broad way and the narrow way. Peter puts his own spin on it in verse 15. He says that the false teachers and all who follow them forsake the, 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 right way they have gone astray there's the right way and there's the wrong way but the real danger for us is forgetting not just their path but their destination where that path leads i'm reminded of of john bunyan's um, pilgrim's progress which by the way for those of you who have children or grandchildren or just children in your life that you love uh there have been some adaptations of Pilgrim's Progress, um, The Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. There are three books out. Highly, highly recommend them. I'm getting this illustration from them. Christian has just entered the narrow gate. And after walking for a little while, he, he sees a mountain. And, and it's a steep mountain. And it only has one narrow path up the mountain. It's dark. It's stormy. It's steep. But for a moment, right, all of Pilgrim's Progress is is following Christian's journey. But for a moment, the focus turns away from him to his two new acquaintances, formality, formalist, sorry, and hypocrisy. They don't like the looks of that steep mountain. They don't like that narrow path. And so, as they get closer to the mountain, a smile creeps up on their face. Because they see two other paths, one to the left, one, sorry, your left, one to the left, one to the right. Christian tried to warn them, don't take those paths. 
They only lead to destruction. Think about the end. Don't go. But of course, they don't listen. They laugh at him. And so for a moment, the author tells us what their destination is. Formalists took the path to the left. And we find that at the end of that path, he got lost to wander in a dark forest forever and ever. Hypocrisy took the path to the right. He tripped down a steep valley and he could never find his way back up. It was too steep. The paths looked easy. They looked more inviting. Birds were singing. The sun was out. Flowers were on the path. But we don't focus on the path. We focus on the destination. Where are we destined? The question for us for our teachers, for anyone we allow to have influence into our lives is not simply what does their path currently look like, but what does the path ultimately lead to? Isn't that what we're trying to teach our kids? Yeah, you don't see any consequences right now, but if you continue on this path, if you continue eating this way, talking this way, spending money this way, studying this way, behaving this way, there's going to be consequences in the end. You don't see them right now because you're eight. But I've seen them. I've experienced them. Listen. And so Peter, Peter does what any good pastor would do. He takes us to the book of Numbers. Your favorite book and mine, I'm sure. He says in verse 15 that the false teachers have followed the way of Balaam. Now, you probably know this story because of the talking donkey, but that's not the focus. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Now, if you've read the first part of that story, that verse makes no sense. Because what's funny about the story is if you look at your cross-references, the reference is Numbers 22 to 24. It's three chapters. And if you read that story, you're going to be confused because Balaam does everything right. His path looks good. He repents. He tells the king, no way. He tells the evil king, no way. I will not go against the word of God. And instead of cursing the king's enemies, he blesses God's people just like he told them to. I mean, I want to be like Balaam. This is great. So why is Peter using him as an example of a false teacher? Because of Balaam's destination. Because of what he ended up doing. See, if you fast forward several chapters, you get to Numbers 31, verse 16 in which we read that, behold, these women, the verse before tells us that Balaam used women to deceive God's people, to lead them from the path. These women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. This is such an important story that John, Jesus, uses it in Revelation. Speaking to the church at Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2, he writes, But I have a few things against you, church. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might 
eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. The goal in this story is to point out the destination where they were headed, not just a path. And the goal in pointing out the destination and not just the path is not to just get you to wise up. The goal here is not to scare you or guilt you into greater obedience that never works long term. The solution is not for you to try to get your life together so that you can end up in the right destination, heaven instead of hell. It's actually quite the other way around in Scripture. Paul to the church in Ephesus writes that God has raised us up. God has already in Christ raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That verse, among many others, tells you that your destination in Christ is already secure. You do not do things or say things or don't do things in order to secure your destination. It's secured. You now act in light of that. He makes this clear in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, do you see how that's done? Because you have been raised with Christ, get to work. Do the things that are of Christ. Seek the things that are above. Because that's where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. And we just read from Ephesus that we're seated with him. Your destination is secure. False teachers, false pastors, false coaches, false influencers seem like they're on a successful happy path. But anything that leads you away from Jesus is a path that only leads to destruction. By contrast, you Christian are in Christ and so your destination is intertwined with his. And so we read the next verses in Colossians, you have died Christian. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so, let's jump to the destination. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. It is secure. It is done. It is finished. And so, I urge you, Christian, to follow the right path. Not to earn or reach your destination, but because in Christ, your destination is already secure. Amen. And because it is only on that path that you will find true deliverance, we have to ask the final question, whom do they deliver? We don't only ask about desires. We don't only consider the destination. We consider what they do. Whom do they deliver? Verse 17, Peter describes these false teachers as waterless springs. They promise refreshment, but they don't have it. He also describes them as mists driven by a storm. You spray a mist and where does it go? Wherever the wind blows. Well, imagine it's not just a breeze. Imagine there's a storm. They're going to go everywhere. There's no security. There's confusion. They're wishy-washy. But Peter tells us why you should know why you should know that these false teachers can't deliver on their promises. Verse 19. You see, they, they promise you freedom. But they themselves are not free. They are slaves of corruption. 
They tell you, do this, don't do this, buy this, read this, and you will be free, you will be happy, you will be delivered. But they themselves are slaves of corruption and sin. Peter knows what we know. He knows that big promises require big evidence. These teachers and many of the influencers and mentors in our lives make big promises. Do this and you'll be delivered from, pro- from poverty. Follow my real estate. Follow my portfolio. Invest like I do. Buy this, don't buy this, and you will be delivered from poverty. Follow this program and you'll be delivered from all the problems in your marriage. You will be happy. Your wife will be perfect. Your husband will be perfect. Do this and you'll have the body you want. Do this and your children will obey. Do this, don't do that. Buy this, don't buy that. But the common thread they all have is they all sell you on the idea of happiness. Do this and you will be happy. In fact, you can't be happy until you do this or buy this. This right here, this is what will finally deliver you from unhappiness. And do you know how you should know that they can't deliver on that promise? If I can appropriate Peter's words, they promise happiness, but they themselves are not happy. They are slaves of what they claim gives them freedom. I I always, I don't remember if I've shared this before, but I always think of Jim Carrey's words in situations like this. Uh, he, He said very astutely, in an interview, I think everybody should get rich. That's nice. Uh, and famous and everything they ever dreamed of. I think everybody should get rich and famous and everything they ever dreamed of. Do you know why? So that they can see that that's not the answer. His words. A man who has millions, a man who is famous, a man who has everything he thought he ever dreamed of. Wishes that everybody could do the same thing so that they could see what he has found out. That's not the answer. That's not the deliverance he needed. We think more money will deliver us. We think happier relationships will deliver us. We think if we get more organized, more prepared, we will be delivered from all that makes us unhappy. And that's where we can start to look for deliverance in all the wrong places. We can look for it through the promises of a false gospel teacher. But even less severely, we can look to our jobs to provide us the fulfillment and satisfaction that we crave. We can pour our lives into our family because I want to be a family man. I want to be a good mom. I want to be a good wife, a good husband, a good student, a good child. And if I do that, that that will fill the void that I have in my heart. But that new job, that new house, that new car won't deliver you, Christian. The solution is not a new relationship, a marriage seminar, or a parenting conference. Because you have a deeper problem that none of those things are equipped to fix. And so we're going to conclude here as, as, uh, as our deacon come, goes to grab our children. You have a deeper problem that none of those things are equipped to fix. Even if you've never played sports in your life, you wouldn't try to hit a baseball with a toothpick, would you? I hope not. Some of you are thinking about it. 
But even if you did, you wouldn't complain that the ball didn't go very far, would you? No, because that's not what a toothpick is for. You're using the wrong tool for the job. And so we shouldn't look to any of these things, any of these toothpicks, to solve such a great problem of sin. No, we need the baseball bat that the Bible calls Jesus. And the way Jesus delivers us is not only by dying on the cross for our sins. He did do that. And that is absolutely necessary. The Bible tells us that sins deserve to be punished by death. And what Jesus did on the cross was take our sins on himself and died the death we should have died for our sins. We needed that. That's necessary. We also needed what the cross delivers us from and to. Through the cross, Jesus transforms us. He gives us a new heart, a new being. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul explains this. He says, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, has trusted their life to Jesus above all else, if anyone trusts in Jesus to deliver them from their sins, that person is a new creation. The old is as good as dead. That's what the old has passed away means. Behold, the new has already come. You are a new creation, child of God. And according to Peter, that means that you are not a dog or a pig anymore. These are Peter's words, not mine. Verse 22. What the true proverb has happened says has happened to them, the false teachers, and to anyone who believes in false teaching. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Dogs return to their own vomit. Why? Is it because they haven't been taught any better? Is it because they didn't go to the right school? Is it because they need further education? No, it's because they're a dog. Why, why do pigs play in the dirt and the mud? It's because that's who they are. They're a pig. You don't go to a pig, not that you have many pigs in your life, but you don't go to a pig and say, stop playing in the mud. What are you doing? Don't you know better? There's grass right over there. You don't do that because that's what pigs do. But you, Christian, in Christ, you're no longer a pig or a dog You're a sheep. That's the picture that Scripture paints for us. Jesus tells you, child of God, that you are his sheep in John chapter 10. And he tells you what that means. It means that in him, you have a door. In John chapter chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me, are thieves and robbers. Those are all false teachers. Those false teachers that came before me, claiming to be the deliverance, claiming to be the Messiah, they're liars, they're thieves and they're robbers. And the real sheep know that. The sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, he says. If anyone enters by me and by me only, he will be saved, he will go in and out, and he will find peace, security, true happiness, true belonging, true deliverance, or what Jesus calls pasture.
The false teachers and the false deliverers of our age are, are nothing but thieves and robbers, Christian. You need to hear that. They promise things that they cannot deliver. They're not equipped to do it. But Jesus is the door, and all those who seek to find happiness, rest, and security will find it if they enter through him. And so let me conclude with this. Whatever other doors you are going through or even entertaining, I urge you, not just on the authority of God's word, not just because I care for you, but because it's the difference between life and death, I urge you, do not go through those other doors. They have nothing to offer you. You are a child of God. Jesus is the one true door. In Jesus, you will find everything your heart truly desires. You will find a worthy destination, and you will find the glorious deliverance that you need. Amen. Join me as we pray. Dear God, thank you for the good news that we have in Christ. We have a true deliverance. We have what our hearts truly desire, and we have a glorious destination waiting for us. Help us not just to see that vaguely, but help us to internalize that. Help us to see that that is true and glorious and worthy of worship. And I pray that that would change how we see ourselves, how we see those around us, and how we see our neighbors and friends as we seek to live out the gospel. Thank you for Jesus, our true and full deliverance. We pray all this in his name. Amen.